to be able to tell other people about Jesus and you think of those opportunities that you had when you're able to do that, how, how thrilling that is, how exciting it is to be able to do. I, I love being able to do that in the church Sunday by Sunday, but I'm really excited when outside the church I'm able to talk to people about Jesus. And my guess is that you are, too, when you have those opportunities. I want to ask you today, if you were to be able to have any opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, what would that look like for you, your kind of ideal opportunity? Would it be up in front of a big crowd, or would it be a small gathering, or one-on-one? And, and what do you wish you could say that you just seem to never get the chance to say, by the opportunity to say anything? Uh, what what would I say? Would it, would it be a deep discussion, or would it be an earnest exhortation? What is it that you'd say? I want to suggest to you today that the greatest testimony to Jesus that you have is not in what you say, but what others say about you. And I want to read to you today from uh, John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. Uh, This is those six days before the Passover, that last Passover, when Jesus has arrived in Bethany, Lazarus, uh, whom he has raised, and his sisters Mary and Martha. And I'm going to pick up in verse 9. This is God's word. Meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. And that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he'd given this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, oh, the whole world has gone after him. Oh, Father, we could, we could wish that, we could desire it, that we'd see the whole world go after Jesus. And Father, we do pray for that. We pray that by your word that you might uh, mold us and shape us to be used by you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This scene here is often called the triumphal entry. In fact, your Bible, just like mine, probably has an editorial heading over this section called the triumphal entry, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. All four of the Gospels 
record this event. They have different perspectives on it, different things that they bring out, but they all record the same event. And it's this entry into Jerusalem before Jesus' last Passover. It's something that uh, I get to preach on every Palm Sunday. So this Sunday, I'd like to focus our attention on something else in the text, something that's easily overlooked in the shadow of this great event of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And it's something that we find only here in John's Gospel. It's something that I discovered uh, some years ago in my private Bible reading and devotions. And you know, in John's Gospel, more than any of the other Gospels, if you read the Gospel of John, there's like this main flow of the story, but there's these little eddy currents along the sides of things that are going on. And one of those eddy currents is something that uh, I've come to call the Lazarus Lesson. Lazarus, you know, is kind of a mysterious figure. We meet him only in the Gospel of John. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary and Martha are well-known. And yet we don't encounter him in John's Gospel until chapter 11, after he's died. And the last that we hear of him is in chapter 12. Now, if you were here on the Sunday that I spoke about this, you know the story. Dead for four days, Jesus went and raised him from the dead, which caused quite a stir, as you might imagine. And many of the religious leaders in Jerusalem who, who had their own agenda now for the way things should go, and if the Messiah came at all, what he should look like, decided at that point that they really, really, really needed to get rid of Jesus. And so Jesus leaves the region for a while, but he comes back here just before the Passover, and that's where we are in the story. There are a few things for us to know about Lazarus here. Again, because this is the last chapter that he'll be mentioned in. Did you notice in the Gospel of John that Lazarus is mute? I don't mean by that that he's literally unable to speak. I can imagine that if, if Lazarus really was mute, that he just wasn't able to talk, that John probably would have drawn attention to that. And in fact, probably if he was mute, Jesus would have healed him because we see him doing that to other people who are mute and we're told that Jesus dearly loved Lazarus. But what I mean is that in John's Gospel, Lazarus never speaks. There's no passage that says, then Lazarus said. He never says anything in John's Gospel. Mary speaks. Martha speaks. Lazarus never speaks. It's kind of puzzling, don't you think? I, I think if I knew somebody who was unquestionably dead for four days, I would very much like to know what he had to say. I, I, I'd very much like to hear what he might have to say about that. I, I, there are all kinds of questions that I might like to ask him. But the Bible records not one word out of his 
mouth. And here, by the way, you know, in our uh, adult Sunday school class, we're doing a class on wisdom. Um, Ben Green and I are doing it together. I'm really enjoying it. I hope that those of you who are attending are as well. And, And here's the start of gaining spiritual wisdom. There are a lot of people who have questions and they go to the Bible for answers. Does that sound wise to you? Well, there's wisdom in that, but wiser still is the realization that the Bible was not given to us to answer all the questions that come into our heads. The Bible rather tells us what questions are ultimately worth asking. Which questions are ultimately important? And apparently, what did a man who was dead for four days have to say is not one of them. So in John's gospel, Lazarus is mute. Lazarus has nothing to say. And yet, apparently, as you read the text here, his life speaks volumes. And and that was part of the Lazarus lesson that I realized as I was reading this. You know, sometimes in life, we'd we'd really like to say something about Jesus, but we're rendered mute. But even when you're rendered mute, your life has something to say. But what? What does it say? The, The greatest testimony to Jesus may not be what you say, but what others say about you. About uh, what others say about you because of what Jesus has done. So I look at Lazarus's life, and his life is an envy. It's, it's my envy anyway. I'm envious of Lazarus's life. We read uh, in verse 9, Meanwhile, a, a large crowd of the Jews found out where Jesus was and came, not only because of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And we read in verse 17, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. I'm I'm envious of a life that is so thoroughly healed, so thoroughly restored, so thoroughly saved that people want to see me in order to see what Jesus has done. Because that's what's happened with Lazarus. People want to see him because of what Jesus has done. I'm envious of a life that is so thoroughly restored, so thoroughly healed, so thoroughly saved that other people bear witness to Jesus on account of what he's done for me. That's that's an envy. Lazarus is mute. We don't have to be, but what should our speech look like? You know, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16... But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give 
the reason for the hope that is within you, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And Peter envisions this situation where witness is born with words because people see a changed life and want to know, why is that? What's happened? Why are you different? And I want a life like the life of Lazarus, and I want my speech to look like the speech that Peter envisions. A a life that is so thoroughly saved, so thoroughly restored, so thoroughly changed, that rather than being the one starting the conversation, I have to be the one that gives the response to people who are asking me about it. And I think that Jesus envisions that for you, too. See, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men so that they may hear your good words and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is that what Jesus said? He didn't. He said so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think it's worth pausing for a moment and asking if that's what we see played out today on the stage of American evangelicalism. Do, do people outside the church generally look at Christians today and say, oh my, look at how different these people are. Look at how they're changed. Look at how they love. Look at the things they do. Why is that? How can we be like that? Is it the way you think that most people look at politicians in Washington, D.C. who clothe themselves in the claims of the Christian faith? Do people look at their deeds and are they compelled to glorify our Father in heaven for it? You know, too many people put on a martyr's cloak and blame Christ for their sin. And those who don't know Christ believe them. And so Christ, thus misrepresented, is hated and maligned. It's not new. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he said, You who boast in God's law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. It's a rampant cancer in American evangelicalism. But it's not a new disease. I'll act like a jerk for Jesus' sake. And then when I get my just desserts, I'll cry that I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian and because people hate Jesus. And Peter asks the question, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? He writes, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, live as God's slaves. 
In John's Gospel, Lazarus speaks no words, but his life is a powerful testimony to Jesus. It's yours. It's mine. The greatest testimony to Jesus you have is not in what you say, but in what others say about you. And Paul, you know, urged the young men of Titus' congregation to be of such sound speech, he said, that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. What aroma does your life have? You know, Lazarus once had the air of death about him. But now he's got the fragrance of life. His very life is a testament to Jesus. And as we read here, many are being drawn to Jesus because of him. Not all. Not all. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Lazarus isn't preaching. If he said anything at all, it wasn't important enough to record. But his life is a testament to Jesus. And there are some who just can't have that. Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth in his second letter. He says, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one a smell from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. When Christians are offensive in their words, in their attitudes, in their actions, in their manner, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. But it can happen that you can be never so careful but to walk in a manner that is fitting of Christ, that is inoffensive, that is gentle, that is compassionate, to use the words that the writer to the Hebrews uses of Jesus to be holy and harmless and undefiled and still pique the ire of people because your life is a testament to Jesus. You know, I've got a friend who's a follower of Jesus who has a family member um, whose life choices don't exactly glorify God and in fact bring harm to herself. And my friend cannot embrace and affirm those choices as a follower of Jesus, not without denying Jesus. But I've seen him go out of his way to be inoffensive, gone out of his way to be kind and compassionate and loving. He doesn't say much, but he endeavors to faithfully follow Jesus, and so he can't affirm those choices. But it seems that's not good enough. Unless he affirms behavior that he can't affirm his love, his inoffensiveness, his kindness, his compassion, even his silence, not enough. I want to tell you that that's not him being offensive. The offense there is Jesus. 
There are too many people who, in the name of Christ, uh, use Christ as a covering for self-service. Who will complain when they get their just treatment that they're being persecuted. Be careful, my dear brothers and sisters, never to be such people. But if you truly seek to follow Jesus, not just use him as a means to some end of your own, but truly seek to follow him, you will have the aroma of his life about you. And for many people, that will be a positive thing. But you need to know that for some, it will bring their ire. It will bring hatred without any real cause. Lazarus has done nothing. He's living his life. And for that, because of what Jesus has done in his life, he becomes a target. We've got to get rid of him, too. It, It should catch our attention that among the requirements of those who would be called to serve as elders, as shepherds of God's flock, there's the requirement that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. That's very interesting. It's not enough that people think well of them inside the church. They need to be thought of uh, well from those who are outside the church. That ought to be so for all of us, that those outside the church think well of us. I think it's especially important in this day of hyper-partisanship and social media-induced divisiveness. Do you want God to use you to bear witness to Jesus and bring others to him? Then learn a lesson from the life of Lazarus. The greatest testimony that you can have to Jesus is not going to be in what you say, but it's in what others will say about you if your life has been healed, has been restored, has been changed by him. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, we sang it before more and more like you. Do what you must do in our lives. But conform us to the image of Jesus. And Father, help us to bear the the aroma, the fragrance of his life. That, that Father, um, others truly seeing him may be attracted to him. We'll give you the glory for those things in Jesus' name. Amen.